0: In the name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Lord, well, if anyone up through the 12th grade, please come forward. I want to bear it. The the readings from scripture today and the hymns that we're singing, it's all about following Jesus' discipleship. What is it that moves us forward instead of moving us backward? Because once we accept Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, we don't look back. The last hymn said, Love, God says, Love me more than anything, don't turn back. The epistle reading says, follow the gifts of the spirit. Don't follow carousing and drunkenness and envy and all the things that get in the way that oftentimes we find ourselves in. You know, we, we just get caught up in the world sometimes. And, and uh, we're, we're really kind of going through a lot right now in our world with things going on. But the Lord said, just stay focused on me. Keep walking forward. Don't look back. Keep walking forward. I grew up with a song, I have decided to follow Jesus. You ever hear that? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Keep going forward. Keep your eyes on God. Because this world is not where we belong. That world is where we belong. And as long as we keep our eyes focused on heaven upon our eternal destiny the Lord's going to take care of us doesn't mean we're not going to walk through a bunch of stuff but the Lord's going to take care of us you got a long ways to go I'm a little bit closer to there than you are right now Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what when I get there I'll come to you and well I can't come to you I'll send an angel to tell you, oh, you're, you're just going to be so, wow, you won't, you won't even believe it. And it will help you keep your eyes on, on Jesus, knowing what lies ahead. We already know what lies behind us. But knowing what lies ahead, wow, that helps us move forward in that direction all the time. So you've already decided to follow Jesus. Don't turn back, okay? All right. Thanks. Now, while you're there, help me up. Come here, help me up. Thanks. (laughs) There was a daughter, a daughter who wrote a letter to her father. And this is what the letter said, Dearest Dad, I'm coming home to get married soon. Can you help me pay for a big wedding? I'm presently in Australia, and the boy I love lives in Scotland. We met on a dating website, became friends on Facebook. We had long chats on WhatsApp. He proposed to me on Zoom. We stayed in touch through Viber. Dad, can I count on you for a big wedding? Your favorite daughter, Lily. And Dad's response, my dearest Lily. Like, wow, really? Cool. I suggest you two get married on Twitter. Have a honeymoon on Tango. Buy your kids on Amazon. Pay for it all through PayPal. And when you get fed up with this new husband, sell him on eBay. <laughs> Love, Dad. <laughs> you didn't have to do that. They were already laughing, okay? This is one of the few that was really good. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. On to the sermon. I will begin by telling you a quick story. They were 5,000 feet in the air in a two-seat Cessna when suddenly the pilot just slumps over. It happened not so long ago near Mount Hope, Indiana to an 81-year-old passenger who was flying to Indianapolis for lunch. And when his 52-year-old friend and pilot unexpectedly died right there in the pilot's seat, The elder passenger realized he knew nothing about flying and a whole lot less about landing. In the next 20 minutes you can bet he gave his total attention to the voices on the radio and the instructions that were being given him. Another pilot nearby coached him and gave him a crash course, no pun intended, in flying a two-seat Cessna and mostly, importantly, in landing a Cessna. He circled the airport three times, came in, bounced a few times, and landed in a soggy field. And incredibly, there was no damage except for a bent propeller. If this happened to you or to me today, our number one priority would be determined very, very quickly. The main thing and the only thing would be to land the Cessna and not crash. The main thing and the only thing. In today's gospel reading, Jesus and his disciples, they are beginning their final journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And this is very important for us to know the very first sentence of the gospel reading today. Especially if we're trying to understand Jesus' challenging responses to the three would-be disciples who come seeking after Jesus. And so our gospel begins when the days drew near for him to be taken up. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was moving toward Jerusalem the main thing. Earlier in this very same chapter of this Gospel of Luke, Jesus has sent his disciples out in pairs, two by twos, to preach the kingdom of God. In this very same chapter, chapter 9, he's fed the 5,000. In this very same chapter, he's met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration to break up a fight among the disciples over who would be the greatest in this very same chapter, he has made an example of one small child, and he said, Whoever is least among you will be the greatest of all. Jesus is making it very clear that there comes a time when you reach the point of no return, you must go all in. Because remember, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem to make the ultimate sacrifice for his church, for you, for me. And from the last Sunday of June, which is today, all the way to the end of October, we too, as disciples of Jesus, we are walking with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem All the gospel lessons over these next four months belong within Luke's journey narrative as Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And it concludes nearly 10 chapters later with Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Now before we go to the gospel lesson for the day, allow me to do some wondering with you. Sometimes I wonder what it would sound like if we were to go around telling other people that we were almost God's people, that we're almost Christian. Guess what, everybody? I am almost a child of God today. Or maybe in my prayers, well, Lord, I have to tell you that today I was almost your disciple. I wonder what it would have been like had Jesus done the same thing Or what if God had almost revealed himself in Jesus Christ? Or what if Christ was almost born and almost lived and almost died and was almost resurrected? What if he would have said, ask and it will almost be given to you. Seek and you will almost find. Knock and it will almost be opened to you. Or what if he would have said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will almost give it to you. Or what if Jesus had told his disciples, for whosoever would save his life will lose it. And whosoever loses his life for my sake will almost find it. This kind of almost Christianity takes on a whole new light, doesn't it? And I must confess there are times when I myself have played this game, being an almost disciple, almost believing in this or that. You know, down here in Texas, there is a difference between almost and done did. It equals out to the distinction between interest and commitment. When we're interested in doing something, we do it only when it's convenient for us to do it. And if it's not convenient, we don't do it. But when we're committed to something, we accept no excuses. We only look for results. In the gospel reading today, these three guys who wanted to follow Jesus, they had one thing in common. They were all interested, but they were not committed They were interested in being disciples of Jesus only on their own terms, not on the terms of Jesus, only at their own convenience. So the first guy, he comes to Jesus and volunteers his service. Lord, I will follow you wherever you go, implying today, tomorrow, maybe next Thursday. Because judging from Jesus' response, this man was not thinking about a lifelong commitment to God. This man wanted religion on his own terms. Maybe he wanted something less time consuming, maybe a little bit less demanding, a little bit more convenient. But Jesus indicates that if this man wants to be his disciple, he must first count the cost and willingly embrace the risks of rejection, of hatred, of persecution, The first man said, I will volunteer, but it has to be on my terms. The second man comes along, and though he also agrees to follow Jesus, he says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Sounds like a reasonable request. In the Jewish religion, loyalty to family took precedence over religious duties. But notice how Jesus responds. He says, Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Why in the world would Jesus seem so insensitive to this man's request? Maybe he wasn't being insensitive. Jesus knew that his disciples' loyalty would be tested to the highest degree. And so he gave the man a difficult choice, loyalty to his family or loyalty to God. You take your pick. Notice that Jesus is not calling the man to perform some religious duty. Jesus is calling this man to the highest vocation, the transformation of his life. Discipleship in the kingdom of God transcends duty even to those closest to us because such commitment affects what really matters. It affects life itself. In his commentary on St. Luke's Gospel, G.B. Caird reminds us that the most difficult choice in life is not the choice between good and evil. It is the choice between good and the best. The most difficult choice we have in life is not the choice between good and evil. It is the choice between the good and the best. Though the choice between duty to family and duty to God is difficult, very difficult at times, this man, this would-be follower of Jesus, must choose what is ultimately important to him. His duty to his family, which is the good, or his duty to God, which is the best. The third fellow comes along, agrees to follow Jesus, and says, but Lord, first let me run home. But first let me run home and say goodbye to my family. Again, somewhat of a reasonable request. But the job of being a disciple demanded detachment from family and friends on a human level, those human ties and affections needed to be understood in the larger context of the family of God, of the church, of the body of Christ. Jesus tells this man that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Folks, the urgency of the gospel message demands that all ties must be cut and there can be no looking back once we accept the christian way we cannot reflect on how things might have been better for us if we had made a different decision we accept god's call with all of the hardships that implies never looking back like saint paul when he said for this this one thing i do forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, that's those three guys. What about us? Sometimes we want a less demanding religion, don't we? More of a convenience store Christianity where we can choose a smorgasbord of religion that will meet our needs. Boy, isn't that prevalent in our society today, in the church today. But the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God is more like the businessman looking for a fine pearl. And when he finds a pearl worth a great deal, he sells everything he has, everything he has. And he goes and buys that pearl. And when we choose to follow Jesus Christ, it costs us everything. Because when we look into the face of Jesus, we marvel at such a prize. And we say, I want this prize. How much does it cost? And the seller says, it's too dear. It costs way too much. And we say, okay, but how much? And he says, well, it's very expensive. Okay, but do you think I can afford it? He says, oh, of course, anybody can. But you say it's too expensive. How much is it? It costs you everything you have. No more, no less. So anybody can have it. Okay, I'll buy it. And the seller says, what do you have? Let's write it down. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good. $10,000. What else do you have? I have nothing more. That's all I have. And the seller says, you don't have anything else? Well, I have some dollars here in my pocket. How many? I'll see. Let's see. 30, 40, 20, 80, 100, 120. I got $120. That's fine. I'll take it. What else do you have? I have nothing else that's all where do you live the seller asks I, I, I live in my house you have a house the house goes too. then you mean I have to live in my garage you have a garage too that goes also what else do you have do you mean that I have to live in my car you have a car? I have two of them. And the seller says, then both become mine, both cars. What else? I have nothing else. Are you alone in this world? No, I have a spouse and two children. Then your spouse and two children too. They are mine. What else? I have nothing else. I am left all alone now. Oh, you still have yourself. Then you too. Everything, everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, garage, cars, money, clothing, everything, and you too. Now, you can use all those things here, but don't forget that they are mine, and you are mine. When I need any of these things you are using, you must give them to me, because now I am the owner. Folks, that's the cost of discipleship. Jesus is not calling us to a convenient religion. He is calling us to a fundamental transformation of life, a life of committed, responsible discipleship. And like the three would-be followers of Jesus, we too must realize that we cannot live the Christian faith on our own terms. We cannot mold God into our liking, into our likeness. We have been called to accept the burden that the cross imposes upon us. And like our master who goes before us, we must set our face toward Jerusalem and toward the moment of crisis and destiny, fully accepting all of the risks involved. Though we have many important choices to make in our lives, Jesus is asking us to choose the best instead of just the good. He wants nothing less than first place in our lives. And so we never look back, but we always look forward to the cross, which leads us to victory and to eternal life. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen.